Hello and welcome back to Red Loud. Today will be Continue Soul of Man Under Socialism by Oscar Wilde. Now I've said that the community by means of organization of machinery will apply the useful things and that the beautiful things will be made by the individual. This is not merely necessary, but it is the only possible way by which we can get either the one or the other. An individual who has to make things for the use of others and with reference to their wants and their wishes does not work with interest and consequently cannot put into his work what is best in him. Upon the on the other hand, whenever a community or a powerful section or a government of any kind attempts to dictate to the artist what he is to do, art either entirely vanishes or becomes stereotyped, or degenerates into a low and ignoble form. A work of art is the unique result of a unique temperament. Its beauty comes from the fact that the author is what he is. It has nothing to do with the fact that other people want what they want. Indeed, the moment that an artist takes notice of what other people want and tries to supply demand, he ceases to be an artist and becomes a dull or an amusing craftsman, an honest or dishonest tradesman. He has no further claim to be considered as an artist. Art is the most intense mode of individualism that the world has known. I am inclined to say that it is the only real mode of individualism that the world has known. Crime, which, under certain conditions, may seem to have created individualism, must take take cognizance of other people and interfere with them. He belongs to the sphere of action, but alone, without any reference to his neighbors, without any interference, the artist can fashion a beautiful thing, and if he does not do it solely for his own pleasure, he is not an artist at all. And it is to be noted that it is the fact that art is the tense form of individualism that makes the public try to exercise over it an authority that is as immoral as it is ridiculous, and as corrupting as it is contemptible. It is not quite their fault. The public has always and in every age been badly brought up. They are continually asking art to be popular, to please their want of taste, to flatter their absurd vanity, to tell them what they have been told before, to show them what they ought to be tired of seeing, to amuse them when they feel heavy after eating too much, and to distract their thoughts when they are wearied of their own stupidity. Now, art should never try to be popular. The public should try to make itself artistic. There is a very wide difference. If a man of science were told that the result of his experiments and the conclusion that he arrived at should be of such a character that they would not upset the received popular notions on the subject or disturb popular prejudice or hurt the sensibilities of people who knew nothing about science, if a philosopher were told that he had a perfect right to speculate in the highest spheres of thought, provided that he arrived at the same conclusions as were held by those who had never thought in any sphere at all, well, nowadays the man of science and the philosopher would be considerably amused. Yet it is really a very few years since both philosophy and science were subject to brutal popular control. The authority, in fact, the authority of either the general ignorance of the community or the terror and greed for power of an ecclesiastic 
ecclesiastical or governmental class. Of course, we have to a very great extent got rid of any attempt on the part of the community or the church or the government to interfere with the individual of speculative thought, but the attempt to interfere with the individualism of imaginative art still lingers. In fact, it does more than linger. It is aggressive, offensive, and brutalizing. In England, the arts that have escaped best are the arts in which the public takes no interest. Poetry is an instance of what I mean. We have been able to have fine poetry in England because the public do not read it and consequently do not influence it. The public like to insult poets because they are individual, but once they have insulted them, they leave them alone. In the case of the novel and the drama, arts in which the public does not take an interest, the result of the exercise of popular authority has been absolutely ridiculous. No country produces such badly written fiction, such tedious common work in the novel form, such silly vulgar plays as England. It must necessarily be so. Popular standard is of such a character that no artist can get to it. It is at once too easy and too difficult to be a popular novelist. It is too easy because the requirements of the public as far as plot, style, psychology, treatment of life, and treatment of literature are concerned are within the reach of the very meanest capacity and the most uncultivated mind. It is too difficult because to meet such requirements, the artist would have to do violence to his temperament, must have to write not for the artistic joy of writing, but for the amusement of half-educated people, and so would have to suppress his individualism, forget his culture, annihilate his style, and surrender everything that is valuable in him. In the case of the drama, things are a little better. The theater going public like the obvious, it is true, but they do not like the tedious. And burlesque and farcical comedy, the two most popular forms, are distinct forms of art. Delightful work may be produced under burlesque and farcical conditions, and in work of this kind, the artist in England is allowed very great freedom. It is when one comes to the higher forms of the drama that the result of popular control is seen. The one thing that the public dislike is novel. Any attempt to extend the subject matter of art is extremely distasteful to the public, and yet the vitality and progress of art depend in a large measure on the continual extension of subject matter. The public dislike novelty because they are afraid of it. It represents to them a mode of individualism, an assertion of the part of the artist that he selects his own subject and treats it as he chooses. The public are quite right in their attitude. Art is individualism and individualism is a disturbing and disintegrating force. Therein lies its immense value. For what it seeks to disturb is monotony of type, slavery of custom, tyranny of habit, and the reduction of man to the level of a machine. In art, the public accept what has been because they cannot alter it, not because they appreciate it. They swallow their classics whole and never taste them. They endure them as the inevitable, and as they cannot mar them, they mouth about them. Strangely enough, or not strangely according to one's worldviews, this acceptance of the classics does a great deal of harm. The uncritical admiration of the Bible and Shakespeare in England is an instance of what I mean. With regards to the Bible, considerations of ecclesiastical authority enter into this matter so that I need not dwell upon the point. But in the case of Shakespeare, it is quite obvious the public really see neither the beauties nor the defects 
of his plays. If they saw the beauties, they would not object to the development of the drama, and if they saw the defects, they would not object to the development of the drama either. Fact is, the public make use of the classics of a country as a means of checking the progress of art. They degrade the classics into authorities. They use them as bludgeons for preventing the free expression of beauty in new forms. They are always asking a writer why he does not write like somebody else, or a painter why he does not paint like somebody else, quite oblivious to the fact that if either of them did anything of the kind, he would cease to be an artist. A fresh mode of beauty is absolutely distasteful to them, and whenever it appears, they get so angry and bewildered that they always use two stupid expressions. One is that the work of art is grossly unintelligible. The other, that the work of art is grossly immoral. What they mean by these words seems to me to be this. When they say a work is grossly unintelligible, they mean that the artist has said or made a beautiful thing that is new. When they describe a work as grossly immoral, they mean that the artist has said or made a beautiful thing that is true. The former expression has reference to style, the latter to subject matter, but they probably use the words very vaguely, as an ordinary mob will use ready-made paving stone. There is not a single real poet or prose writer of this century, for instance, on whom the British public have not solemnly conferred diplomas of immorality, and these diplomas practically take the place, with us, of what in France is the formal recognition of the Academy of Letters. Unfortunately, make the establishment of such an institution quite unnecessary in England. Of course, the public are very reckless in their use of the word. That they should have called Wordsworth an immoral poet was only to be expected. Wordsworth was a poet, but that they should have called Charles Kingsley an immoral novelist is extraordinary. Kingsley's prose was not of a very fine quality. Still, there is the word, and they use it as best they can. An artist is, of course, not disturbed by it. The true artist is a man who believes absolutely in himself because he is absolutely himself. But I can fancy that if an artist produced a work of art in England that immediately on its appearance was recognized by the public through their medium, which is the public press, as a work that was quite unintelligible and highly moral, he would begin to seriously question whether in its creation he had really been himself at all and consequently whether the word was not quite unworthy of him and either of a thoroughly second-rate order or of no artistic value whatsoever. Perhaps, however, I have wronged the public in limiting them to such words as immoral, unintelligible, exotic, and unhealthy. There is one other word that they use. They use it. That word is morbid. They do not use it often. The meaning of the word is so simple that they are afraid of using it. Still, they use it sometimes, and now and then one comes across it in popular newspapers. It is, of course, a ridiculous word to apply to a work of art. For what is morbidity but a mood of emotion or a mode of thought that one cannot express? The public are all morbid because the public can never find expression for anything. The artist is never morbid. He expresses everything. He stands outside his medium and through its medium produces incomparable and artistic 
artistic effects. Call an artist morbid because he deals with morbidity as his subject matter is as silly as if one called Shakespeare mad because he wrote King Lear. On the whole, an artist in England gains something by being attacked. His individuality is intensified. He becomes more completely. Of course, the attacks are very gross, very impertinent, and very contemptible. But then no artist expects grace from the vulgar mind or style from the suburban intellect. Vulgarity and stupidity are two very vivid facets in modern life. One regrets them naturally, but there they are. They are subjects for study, like everything else. And it is only fair to state, with regards to modern journalists, that they always apologize to one in private for what they have written against one in public. Within the last few years, few other adjectives, it may be mentioned, have been added to the very limited vocabulary of art abuse that is at the disposal of the public. One is the word unhealthy, the other is the word exotic. The latter merely expresses the rage of the momentary mushroom against the immortal, entrancing, and exquisitely lovely orchid. It is a tribute, but a tribute of no importance. The word unhealthy, however, admits of analysis. It is a rather interesting word. In fact, it is so interesting that the people who use it do not know what it means. What does it mean? What is a healthy or an unhealthy work of art? All terms that one applies to a work of art, provided that one applies them rationally, have reference to either its style or its subject or both together. From the point of view of style, a healthy work of art is one whose style recognizes the beauty of the material it employs. Be that material one of words or of bronze, of color, or of ivory, and uses that beauty as a factor in producing the aesthetic effect. From the point of view of subject, a healthy work of art is one the choice of which whose subject is conditioned by the temperament of the artist and comes directly out of it. In fine, a healthy work of art is one that has both perfection and personality. Of course, form and substance cannot be separated in a work of art. They are always one. But for purposes of analysis, and setting the wholeness of aesthetic impressions aside for a moment, we can intellectually so separate. An unhealthy work of art, on the other hand, is a work whose style is obvious, old-fashioned, and common, and whose subject is deliberately chosen, not because the artist has any pleasure in it, but because he thinks that the public will pay him for it. In fact, the popular novel that the public calls healthy is always a thoroughly unhealthy production, and what the public call a unhealthy novel is always a beautiful and healthy work of art. I need hardly say that I am not, for a single moment, complaining that the public and the public press misuse these words. I do not see how, with their lack of comprehension of what art is, they could possibly use them in the proper sense. I am merely pointing out the misuse, and as for the origin of the misuse and the meaning that lies behind it all, the explanation is very simple. It comes from the barbarous conception of authority. It comes from the natural inability of a community corrupted by authority to understand or appreciate individualism. In a word, it comes from that monstrous and ignorant thing that is called public opinion, which, bad and well-meaning as it when it tries to control action, is infamous and of evil meaning though it tries to control thought or art. Indeed, there is much more to be said in favor of the physical force of the public than there is in favor of the public's opinion. The former may be fine, the latter must be. It's often said that force is no argument. That, however, entirely depends on what one many of the most important problems of the last such as the influence of personal government in England or feudalism in France, have been solved entirely by means physical force. The very 
violence of a revolution may make the public grand and splendid for it was a fatal day when the public discovered that the pen is mightier than the pavings and can be offensive the brickbat they at once sought for the journalist found him developed him and made him their industrious and well-paid sir it is greatly to be regretted for both theirs behind the barricade there may be much that is noble and heroic but what is there behind the leading article but prejudice stupidity cant and twaddle and when four are joined together they make a terrible constitute authority in the old days men had the rack now they have the press that is an improvement certainly but still is very bad wrong immoralized somebody was it burr called journal the fourth estate that was true at the time no doubt but at the present moment it really is the only estate it is eaten up the other three the lords temporal say nothing the lords spiritual will have nothing and the house of commons has nothing to say and we are dominated by journalism in america the president reigns for four years and journalism governs forever and ever fortunately in america journalism carried its authority the grossest and brutal as a natural consequence it has begun to create a spirit of people are amused by it or disgusted by it according to their temperaments but it is no longer the real force it was not seriously did. in england journalism not except in a few well known instances having been carried to such excess brutality is still a great fact really remarkable power the tyranny that it proposes to exercise over its private lives seems to be quite extraordinary the fact is that the public have insatiable curiosity to know everything except what is worth journalism conscious of this in having tradesmen supplies their demand in centuries before ours the public nailed the of journalists to the pump that was quite hideous in this century journalists have nailed their own ears to the keyhole that is much worse and what aggravates the mischief is that the journalists who are most to blame are not the journalists who write for what are called society papers the harm is done by the serious thoughtful earnest journalists who solemnly as they are doing will drag before the eyes of the public some incident in the private life of a great statesman of a man who is a leader of political thought as he is a creator of force and invite the public to discuss to exercise authority in the matter to give their views and not merely to give their views but to carry them into action to dictate to the man upon all other points to dictate to his party to dictate to his country in fact to make themselves ridiculous offensive and harmful the private lives of men and women should not be told to the public the public have nothing to do with them at all in france they manage these things better there they do not allow the details of the trials that take place in the divorce courts to be published for the amusement or criticism of the public all that the public are allowed to know is that the divorce has taken place and was granted on petition or other or both of the parties in france in fact they limit the journal and allow the artist almost perfect freedom and here we allow absolute freedom to the journalist entirely English public opinion that is say tries to constrain and impede and wrap them in makes things that are and compels the journalist retail are or disgusting and compels the journalist retail things that are ugly or disgusting or revolting in fact so that we have the most serious journalists in the world and the most indecent news it is no exaggeration to talk of shit there are possibly some journalists who take a real pleasure in publishable things who poor look to scandals as forming a sort of permanent basing but there are other journalists i feel certain men of education and cultivation who really dislike publishing things who know that it is wrong to do so and only do it because the unhealthy conditions under which their occupants carried on oblige them to supply the public with what the public wants with other journalists making that supply as full and satisfying gross 
popular appetite. It is a very degrading position for any body educated to be placed in, and I have no doubt that most of them flee. However, let us leave what is really a very sordid and return to the question of popular control matter of art, by which I mean public opinion, dictating to the artist the form which he is to use, the mode in which he is to use it, and the material with which he is to work. Pointed out that the arts which have escaped best in England are the arts in which the public have not been interested. They are, however, interested in drama, and as a certain is made in the drama within the last or 15 years, it is important to point out that this advance is entirely due to a few individual artists refusing to accept the popular want of taste and to regard art as mere magic. With this marvelous and vivid personality, the style that is really a true color element, with his extraordinary power, not over mere mimicry, but, but over imaginative, intellectual creation, Mr. Irving, that is sole object of to the public what he wanted, could have produced the commonest plays in the commonest manner and made as much success and money and could possibly But his object would realize under certain conditions certain forms of art. At first appealed to now he has educated them, created in the public both taste and temperament. The public appreciate his artistic success immensely. I often wonder, however, whether the public understand that that success is entirely due to the fact that not accept their standard, but realize his own. With their standard, the Lyceum would have been a sort of second-rate booth, as some in the popular theaters are at present. Whether they understand it or not, the fact, however, remains that taste and temperament have, to a certain extent, been created in the public, and that the public is capable of developing these qualities. Problems? Why do the public become more? They have the capacity. What stops them? The thing that stops them, as be said, is their desire to exercise authority and overworks of art. To certain theaters, such as the Lyceum and the Market, the public seem to come in a proper mood. In both of these theaters, there are individual artists who have succeeded in creating an audience, the temperament of which art. And what is that temperament? The temperament of receptivity. That is all. He approaches a work of art with any desire to authority of the artist. He approaches it in such a spirit that he cannot receive any artistic impressions from it at all. The work of art is to dominate the spectator. The spectator is not to dominate the work of art. The spectator is to be receptive, to be the violin on which the master and the more completely press his own silly views, his own foolish prejudice, his own absurd idea of what art should be or should not be, and more likely is to understand appreciate work art question. This is quite obvious the case of theater going published men and women, but is equally true of what are called educated for an educated person's idea of art are drawn what art has whereas the new work of art is what art never been. Whereas the new work of full by being what art has never been. And to measure it by standard of the past, measure it by a standard on the rejection of which real perfection depends. A temperament under imagined new, beautiful impressions. The only temperament appreciate a work. And true as this is in the case of the appreciation of sculpting, it is still more true of the appreciation of such arts, for a picture and a statue are not at war with time. They take no succession. One moment, there be apprehended. In the case of literature, it is different. Time must be traversed before the unity of effect is realized. And so in the drama, there may occur in the first act a something whose real artistic value may not be evident to the spectator till the third or fourth act. Is the silly fellow to get angry and call out and disturb the play and annoy the artist? 
No. The, the honest man is to sit quietly and know the delightful emotions, wonder, curiosity, and suspense. He is not to go to the play to lose a vulgar temper. He is to go to the play to realize an artistic temperament. He is to go to the play to gain. He is not the arbiter of the work of art. He is the one who is admitted to contemplate the work of art. If the work be fine, forget in its contemplation an egotism that mars him. Egotism is ignorance or the egotismation. This point about the drama is hardly sufficiently recognized. I can quite understand that were Macbeth produced for the first time before modern, many of the people present strongly and vigorously object to the introduction of the witches in the first act with their grotesque ridiculous. But when the play is over, one realizes that the laughter of the witches is as terrible as the laughter of madness in Lear, more terrible than the laughter of Iago in the tragedy of the Moor. No spectator of art more perfect in receptivity than the spectator of a play. And the moment he seeks to exercise authority, he becomes the avowed enemy of art himself. Art does not mind. It is he who suffers. With the novel, it is the same thing. Popular authority and the reckoning of popular authority are fatal. Thackeray's Esmond is a beautiful work of art because he wrote it to himself. In his other novels, in Pendennis, and Philip, and Vanity Fair even, he is too unconscious of the public and spoils his work by directly sympathies of the public or by directly mocking at. A true artist takes no notice whatever of the public. The public are to him non-existent. He has no poppied or honeyed cakes which to give the monster or substance. He has no poppied or honeyed cakes through which to give them the he leaves that to the novelist. One incomparable novelist we have now in England, George Meredith, there are better artists in France, but France has no one of life is so large, so varied, so imaginative. There are tellers of stories in Russia who have a more vivid sense of what pain in fiction means. But to him belongs philosophy. His people only live, but they live in thought. One can see them from myriad points. They are suggested. There is soul in them. They are imperative and symbolic. He who made them, those wonderful quick fingers, made them for his own pleasure, never asked the public what they wanted, has never cared to know, has never allowed the public to dictate to him or influence him in any way, but has gone on intensifying his own personality, producing his own individual work. At first, none came. That did not matter. Then the few came to. That did not change him. The many have come now. He is still the same. He is comparable. With the decorative arts, it's not different. The public clung with really pathetic to what I believe were the direct tradition, the great exhibition, international vulgarity, traditions that were so appalling that houses in which people lived were only fit for blind. Beautiful things began to be made. Beautiful colors came from the dyer's hand. Beautiful patterns from the artist's brain. Beautiful things value importance forth. The public were really very indignant. They lost their temper. They said silly things. No one minded. No one the wit. No one accepted the authority of public opinion. And now it is almost impossible to any modern house being some recognition of good taste, some the value of lovely surround, some sign appreciation. Of in fact, people's houses are, as a rule, quite charming nowadays. People have been to a very great extent civil. It's only fair to stake, however, that the extraordinary success of the revolution house decorating furniture really 
been majority of the public a very has been chiefly the fact that the craftsmen of things so appreciate the pleasure of being beautiful and woke up to such a vivid vulgarity of the public that they simply starved the public out quite impossible at the present to furnish a room without going for everything to auction secondhand furniture some things are no longer made however they may be object people must nowadays have something charming in their surroundings fortunately for them their assumption of authority in these art matters came to entire grief thanks for listening next episode we'll finish up the soul of man under socialism by oscar wilde as always relevant links and contact info will be in the description